This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Common Practice, a monthly podcast about the things people do. Things to do with creativity, collaboration, cultural democracy, and the commons. This month, back on the microphone, Sophie Hope. Today I'm talking to Mark Herbst, and we're going to be focusing on some work he's been doing with creative workers, precarious creative workers, in refugee homes in Saxony on a project called Always Coming Home. Welcome, Mark, to the podcast. Uh, If you could just tell us a bit about yourself, introduce yourself, and where are you talking from today? Hi, um, thank you for this opportunity to chat about a project I've been working on. Um, My name is Mark Herbst. I am... I was born in the United States, uh, but I'm currently talking to you from Leipzig, Germany. Um, and uh, the context for this conversation is very important, I think, because Leipzig is a progressive bastion in the far right state of Saxony um, in Germany, which borders um, Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic and Poland. Um, and was a part of the former East Germany, um, the land of the children of the innocents, um, who were, uh, because of uh, the Soviet and communist occupation, were granted to be all anti-fascists um, through the history of the occupation. They were um, the working class who were allowed to um, imagine themselves as uh, just victims of the Nazis as well as um, everyone else that the Nazis oppressed. Um, And that context is important because of the incredible amount of racism and um, violence against refugees and asylum seekers that is the general atmosphere around Saxony um, with um bombings of refugee homes um random daily street violence against migrant seekers and um yeah just a very hairy situation um that is probably more dramatic in the uh this part of germany than elsewhere leipzig um where i am currently where this project takes place is an island of Um, more progressive and good governance than in the rest of Saxony. Um, It prides itself as being the home of the resistance to um, the uh, East German government that started the Monday demos that um, led to the fall of the wall. And I could really go deep into the particular history of this city. in relationship to the it's uh, the conservative surrounding area, um, just again to say that all Saxony, where we are, was um, the industrial heartland of Germany before World War II, and was a prize um, by the Soviet Army to uh, take out its uh, industrial base and ship it east after the war to help everybody rebuild, rebuild and then was um, then reinvigorated uh, 
through um, the Soviet era. Leipzig, um, as I said, is always its um, progressive think tank area. It has a university that was founded in the, um, I think, 1419 and was seen um, through history as a place where you go ask um, the intellectuals what to do in terms of good governance. Um, so again, going deep and a little off topic, but uh, reading, I've been doing a side project around the right wing in Germany. And one thing that, uh, or in Saxony, one thing that I found really interesting was that in the 1500s, in relationship to its overpopulated mining districts, um, the 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 House of Saxony decided to ask the intellectuals in um, in Leipzig University in the 15th century or 16th century, what do we do with all these workers in the in the mines when silver prices are low? And they said, "Hey, why don't you start up something that seems like." would today be called a factory <laughs> and so uh yeah leipzig and saxony is a very uh rich cultural history where today um like with the rest of germany there is influx of refugees because of um uh, a variety of pressures, um, obviously related to climate change and war and general power unbalance between um, Europe and the rest of the world. Um, and I could go on. No, that, so that context is so important, Mark, isn't it? And I think maybe as well in terms of your own um, trajectory, uh, before we go into the detail of the the project that we're focusing on for this podcast, could you say a bit about your own um, trajectory in terms of your practice, your as as an artist, as a researcher? Where are you coming from? I guess as well. Uh, so um, I was born in New York, um, got an undergraduate degree in cultural anthropology from a small liberal arts school in uh, Maine, and then. Um, Moved to Los Angeles, uh, studied, got a MFA from the famously progressive hippie layabout school, Cal Arts, in, in 2000, at the same time that I was involved in the alter globalization movement um, throughout the 90s uh, in New York, San Francisco, and Chicago. I helped organize um, the American sides of Reclaiming the Streets. Um, that was flashing through the U.S. like a good rumor and a happy idea. Um, and the idea of changing what seemed to be the quote-unquote end of history that I never quite understood of the 90s neoliberal piece, um, reclaiming the streets and opening up a public space to um other ways of being um in with a critical and political analysis through a good time was a wonderful thing so i was involved in that and pirate radio um and so in a, in 2000 in los angeles at art school involved in international movements me and um my collaborators christina olka Robbie Herbst, Kara Baldwin, Lizzie Mogul, 
and others, um, or, and Kimberly Varela started a journal called the Journal of Aesthetics and Protest that in line with um, the horizontal um, intellectual project of indie media, we.org, uh, which was a early, late 90s um, DIY blogging 1.0 open source activist platform for media, we imagined that we would start an arts and cultural journal as an adjunct to the alter globalization movement. Um, and over the years, the, as the movement uh, developed, dwindled, changed, and disappeared into other movements, I've continued on as a co-editor for this journal um, that is a non-institution uh, doing collaborative research projects and sometimes straight journalism and sometimes supporting of uh, other publishing projects, including the precarious workers, brigades, um, I think it was 2017 uh, guidebook um, around precarious labor in the UK um, to support activist and activist art and arts-based publishing and projects that, yeah, so that's a little bit of my trajectory. Oh, I guess one more thing. In 2019, I got a PhD from Goldsmiths with a, um, with a thesis um, entitled The Cultural Policy of the Multitudes with an understanding that the multitudes have no cultural policy. That was looking at... All right, let me just re-edit the title, A Cultural Policy of the Multitudes in the Time of Climate Change with an Understanding that the Multitudes Have No Cultural Policy. Looking at uh, Barcelona-based um, movements interested in the change of, interested in climate change and um, a UK-based poetry movement also interested in climate change. The climate change that the, uh, that the Barcelona movement was looking at was an, a change in the economic climate. Um, and it uh, developed because of dramatic shifts in the economic climate of successful, relatively successful right to housing movement that changed common sense understandings around the right to housing in Barcelona and affected conversations throughout the UK, uh, no, throughout Spain. And um, the poetry movement I found less interesting because although it was interesting to develop the critical framework to understanding how um, arts and culture relate specifically to questions around climate change and the way that we live together um, and establish terms for conviviality in difficult situations. And so um, over the course of time, I moved from, uh, from Los Angeles to Leipzig in 2010 and had lived between Leipzig, London and Berlin over that period, always finding my way home to Leipzig because of work that I began to do in um, asylum and refugee seeking homes, um, which leads us back to this project. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you, Mark. And I think we need to do another podcast episode on your PhD, which sounds so interesting. Um, so thank you for introducing that to us. We'll come back to it, I think. Um, so let's get on with the uh, project. So always coming home. 
can you give us the kind of seed to that project? Why? How did it begin? What was your role in it? What kind of spurred you to to start this investigation? So, um, in the in two thousand and fifteen, um, with the Syria uh, war in Syria, uh, that of course uh, has a climate based element to it, and also obviously a large human drama. Um, and the wave of migrants uh, coming to Germany displaced from that war, every city throughout, uh, or many places throughout Germany um, responded uh, from both the grassroots and um, through civic leaders saying, let's let's figure out ways to welcome refugees um, and asylum seekers. the city of Leipzig um, had large public meetings. Um, in, the, for example, I attended one in the public library with like six hundred people. It seemed like six hundred people it was probably only like two hundred, but large civic meetings about how we could help ref uh, uh, ref um, refugees be welcome to the city. Um, as an, for, with an activist background, I didn't understand the, um, and also coming through the United States, I had no idea about, um, what it, what kind of, uh, state support there, uh, was available for nonprofits and civil organizations to be involved in, um, bringing people into uh, into the community. Um, I was interested as an activist thinking, okay, here's a clear way um, to be involved in civic life and to do political good. So I went to meetings like that uh, while also working on my PhD um, um, at my desk at, in Leipzig. Um, with my housemate whose background was in puppetry and media art education. Um, And we said, oh, it would be good to figure out a way to help out. Um, Several, a year or two later, um, my housemate Eula uh, took that plan into action and set up um, a way of working with a nonprofit um, I don't know how she did it, but basically she organized um, out what started out as puppetry workshops within one uh, nonprofit, Pandichayan um, Ifa, which is one of the five um, organization settlement houses, settlement house organizations working in Leipzig to give refugee and asylum seekers um, housing. Um, and so I began with Eula and a few other people who uh, she'd gathered up doing puppetry workshops with children in uh, this one large refugee settlement house at the edge of the city of Leipzig um, in the area of Grunau. Uh, in the kids' um, creative room, uh, the ground level room of the settlement house. Can you, before going on to the um, talking more about the workshops and 
then how I guess the inquiry kind of came out of that. Can you give us a bit more context on the settlement homes? You mentioned this non-profit organisation um, yeah. and the because that would be useful, I think, to to get more context again, specifically on what a settlement home is and how that sits in the context of um, of refugees and the system in Saxony. Yeah. So um, if I understand it, at the time I understood none of this, but if I understand it correctly, in uh, Germany, the process is that when you, uh, if you enter Germany from any border and are an asylum seeker or refugee, you're sent first to one of uh, the state's first contact sites that process you and your family, and then are uh, proportionally um, by a number of asylum seekers in each state and background profile sent to one city or another in one particular state uh, and you're sent to a Unterkunft or what I'm what I translate a settlement house a place for you and your family to get settled into Germany while going through the asylum seeking process um, so uh, just as a as an aside, um, Saxony um, officially has a particular number of refugees that they're supposed to uh, house, though because the background racism of this particular state um, unofficially, they try and not send um, they try and send uh, as many people <laughs> from they don't try there's a there's just a, some ways in which they try and give people a better experience by not sending them to Saxony. Um, but that said, um, in the settlement house uh, that I work in, uh, there is a, a social worker, a youth worker, and then there's uh, funds provided for um, through various state funds for projects and exchanges um, while parents are, and or adults are going through an asylum seeking process. Um, there are, as I said, there's five nonprofit organizations. Most of them are names you've heard of, uh, Red Cross, Caritas, um, then there's more German-oriented places like Johanniter. Um, uh, one, I think it's called Europa Homes, which people see as a kind of skeezy for-profit, non-profit enterprise. And then Pandachayan, which is a Saxony-based um, non-profit that, um, because of its scale and mostly working in Leipzig, um, it seemed to be one of the better houses um, or better housing providers for um, asylum seekers. And they run, I think it is around 30 different settlement houses within the city. Some of them are small, uh, grounded site houses that is like the old style or 18th, 19th century style German house um, apartment building integrated into the neighborhoods. Um, and then the one that I work, uh, one of the one that I focus this project on is in uh, 
at the edge of the city, um, which in DDR's site was the fashionable, fashionable modernist um, social housing, which is today, actually this neighborhood is trendy, but definitely, uh, but definitely not hip, uh, hip um, but also edgy neighborhood of Grunau. And so this is like a large flat, um, I think it's five story building with, um, around a hundred residents um, that some people move through there very quickly. Some people, some families stay there for years as a, as an asylum seeker, um, one stays in the house. And if one is given uh, asylum legally, the task, your first task is to find other housing and your charge market rate um, to stay in the house, which can be repaid over time once you have official asylum status. Um, and so uh, the house that I'm focused that I focused on in this project is mainly Syrian, Kurdish, Afghanistani people, as well as um, a few people from sub-Saharan Africa, also Venezuela and Pakistan, also um, uh, the Balkans and um, uh, yeah, and just a, a little bit more, the Ukrainian populations um, in general are given a different status. Um, in terms of their refugee status, and so um, are allowed to not live officially in um, settlement houses, but can are settled throughout the city. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. And are the children there? I presume they're then they're also going to local schools. Yes. Um, so, a kid. One of the, or just to say, one of the problems of refugee settlement um, is that. While uh, families are given information around the uh, basic information around the asylum seeking process, they because there are asylum seekers, they're not given information around life in general and their rights as asylum seekers. Uh, one of those rights is the right for their children to go to school and the right to health care and the right are limited but and different but general rights to health care and the rights to kindergartens um, and other social services for children. Um, so the kids that I've worked with, um, if they're in normal school age, uh, kindergarten, first grade and up, they all go to school. Sometimes children who are a little younger get caught in the miscommunication between parents, institutions, state institutions and um, social housing providers around their rights to go to um, uh, CRIPA or child care services during the daytime, such that a lot of our projects in as uh, precarious cultural workers with kids um, is often dealing with uh, of extreme wide range of children from three-year-olds who are mostly at home with uh, parents who are dealing with uh, asylum-seeking processes, settling down processes, and also pro uh, processing the, or 
varying degrees of trauma and displacement. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Yeah. Um, and the do you want to say going back to the the project? So you were doing the puppet um workshops in this particular house. Yeah. Can you say a bit more about that them and 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 how then you got this idea for doing the workers' inquiry? As I said, around uh, uh, 2016, 2017, uh, Eula Wolf um, and friends uh, said, hey, let's do the, uh, uh, twice a week puppet building workshop workshops with kids um, in the creative room of this settlement house that has around 100 people in them. Um, and so... Uh, we went with uh, uh, the first few days with a very clear idea of a traditional, what I saw as a traditional art school um, project of conceptualizing, designing, refining, building, um, and then uh, building puppets and then setting out to do like a, a holiday time play uh, with the puff puppets. Um, so we imagined a very slow, calm workshop um, in a controlled situation. But because of the nature of the environment, uh, the houses and our very inexperience and our lack of experience in such an environment and our uh uh yeah we found that the work that we wanted to do was impossible uh what we imagined as a slow buildup of a project which involved aesthetic questions with and creative questions with mostly 10 to 13 year olds became an explosion of activity with kids from three years old to 18 years old, um, playing out a variety of dynamics that we as uninformed people armed with our degrees in cultural education, social education, or just plain arts were unprepared for. Um, and, uh, over the course of time, so just to bring a, a listener into the, uh, early days of this project, um, which developed and changed as we got to know how to actually do meaningful work with, um, with this, these kids, we began with the idea that all these kids are traumatized children who somehow through working with puppets, we would be able to have them tell their stories and be able to be uh, healing creative workers. Um, and the slowness and the focus of our pedagogy would do wonders. Instead, um, for example, when we, the first day, introduced paper for them to draw puppets, some kids set to the task very well, and then their mothers 
came down and called them upstairs. Others started folding paper airplanes, all with goodwill, and asking for more paper. Um, and we were like, okay, are we here as police? Or are we here as facilitators? And then we gave them more paper. Uh, and then the whole conversation around the economy of handing out paper to kids developed. And then we had to improvise, okay, what are we doing here? So what I'm trying to say is quickly a whole barrage of questions in relationship to our inexperience, in relationship to the large budget that we were given by, uh, by these projects to, um, to run this project came into play. Um, yeah, and I haven't even discussed any of the financial background that afforded um, the exchanges that we were funded to do, which I suppose I should do now. Yes, please. <laughs> okay. oh, I am really loving the detail of the workshops as well. I think that's really helpful to kind of um, situate us in that room. Um, yeah. and the difficulties of, uh, and, and it, it being a process of figuring out what your role is and how different that is to how when you entered that space and um and how you manage that or or not um and I guess yeah so we'll go we'll come back to that as well because I think that would be a really useful thread to can continue and link up to the to the inquiry itself um but yeah just give us a bit of background as to the money matters yeah so um in uh Germany uh Federal organizations, uh, either mostly, uh, either through um, oh god, uh, so uh, either federal organizations for family and children, um, or through arts and culture, make funding available to smaller but also large national organizations to give funding for either cultural development or for um, cultural, uh, so general cultural development, focused development for children in uh, quote-unquote difficult situations or for uh, directly targeted for what they call um, refugee and migrant um, assimilation within uh, wider populations. Um, so, uh, through a variety of funding providers, uh, secondary funding pro uh, providers, uh, they make calls out saying, "If you are, uh, if you have access to a uh, nonprofit yourself, you can find a partner organization, one or more partner organizations to create cultural projects that." Uh, that respond to social need through arts and culture or exchange. And the funding for these projects can be quite generous. Um, so uh, the projects that are described um, for an hour of work, it's uh, between 23 and 50 euros an hour. Um, uh, so for three hours of work, um, one person, 150 euros tops, and you might be working with two people, so that's 300 euros a day, sometimes twice a week. 
um, with some money being kicked to the organization and providing some some kind of service to the settlement house. Um, and uh, and it becomes routine, becomes a way of building uh, institutional relations, small scale institutional relationships between um, small nonprofit AFAOs. We started a, um, after working with another uh, nonprofit organization, we, Eula and um, Louisa and others, started us uh, our own nonprofit that made us able to become a grant receiving organization to work at these kinds of projects over time. And so that's kind of the general funding background for it. you write grant specific with goals around how you're going to what populations you're going to work with, what are your methods for doing cultural activities with children in this example, and uh, who are your partnering organizations. And I should say, I guess from the outset, that um, one thing that I found really interesting was uh, as i as i talked about over time we began to realize that what we put on paper around what we were doing became not really what we were doing with the kids because our plans for the uh, that our funders wanted to hear was different than what was actually possible to achieve um but it became an open secret among organizations doing this work that that's generally acceptable and I offhandedly had a conversation with a cultural minister from the state of nearby next door state of uh, Turingia about this kind of work and uh, they said yes refugee integration work we fund anything anything is good and I looked at them and said anything is good and they said yes as long as the paperwork looks fine, we will basically fund anything. Um, so, yeah, it's a very feels, though it's difficult work and important work, in general, it has been very generous funding in, in difficult situations. Um, just because it's uh, the work as untrained people who really started out doing this work without any communication skills, sometimes going through serious language barriers. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's hard work despite the ease of it. It's a lot of emotional labor, as it turns out, less so creative labor. So we uh, started out doing ambitious projects, puppet making workshops, comic drawing workshops, um, model car building workshops with the kids that would have inevitably become platforms for our drama with these children and the children's drama with us and the drama of the children with one another, all within the background of them living in um, and um and interfacing with schools and communities that were either welcoming or not welcoming, um, all the while wanting overall to not be jerks while also being care workers rather than cultural workers. And then over time, uh, realizing 
and taking advantage of that play that um, afforded in these stressful situations between what's on paper and what's doable and coming to focus on the affective labor of um, stepping back and letting the children's voices, um, that is voices in the room at play with one another in relationship to us dominate over the sometimes on paper projects around art and creativity. Thank you, Mark. That's really good explanation. Um, I'm wondering as well if uh, I've got a question about the I'd like to hear more about that gap between the application fundraising process and what was happening in practice and whether there is a feedback mechanism through evaluation or I guess this research the research project you've done as well as to whether the funders are interested in that and hearing some of the um some of the differences and the challenges that have, that come up in this work yeah so in general there isn't um I mean there's people who pre- who check the paperwork <laughs> that's for sure um and uh, and which is great uh, it's also great that there's space between what's on the paperwork and what's actually achieved through the work. Um, and so for me, uh, as I said, I've been doing this work for five years without really understanding while I was doing PhD work, while I had been doing eco-feminist learning projects in um while I'd been doing book writing around, um, um, yeah, around successful eco-feminist insurrections and the Zod in France, I was also uh, and doing uh, a variety of conflict resolution activist and art projects. I'd been earning the most consistent salary doing this work while vaguely not articulating with my coworkers how our changing understanding of the work and its possibilities were happening. And for myself as a non-German, um, dealing with a bureaucracy that I simply didn't comprehend, slowly over time, it was like, oh, I really should try and get a grasp of what this work is rather than just show up every day and work hard um, in this mysterious exchange space. And so for me, this always coming home precarious worker inquiry was as much a chance and an opportunity to exchange with my colleagues and collaborators around what this work is as it was to understand the wider context for this work. Um, And so, uh, uh, yeah, in the previously I'd written a paper or two uh, an academic paper or two around the work, um, but mostly in the context of care work um, in relationship to what uh, what was funded as social practice in the DD in the East German time versus social practice artwork under the current regime, um, and doing this work in social uh, formerly socialist infrastructure where despite the incredible violent, uh, incredibly violent cultural, uh, or let's call it heteronormative, heteropatriarchal landscape in East Germany, 
there was money and state support for supported social practices in in West Germany, it becomes a blank hole and everything is under the general and very weak guidelines of cultural work. Um, so I wanted to really get a I wanted to get a handle on what actually is funded uh, and what this work we are doing, because surprisingly, while doing that research, I found very little in the English language around working through arts and culture in refugee homes, um, which really surprised me considering the amount of money that is available for it. Um, and so that's where this project comes from. Right. Thank. Yeah. That's um. That's good background. And the can you say about because obviously you're so you're doing the 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 work of the workshops with the children and that um continues and then you've got this inquiry also on the work itself with your co-workers. Can you say a bit about how you went about the research um and the inquiry in a way you know as you're as you're embedded and embodying that work in it itself I guess the kind of um that uh what you're talking about the kind of feminist feminist inquiries as well uh, uh, draw on that so I just want to add before I go down that line um in the in the project report at uh job.org backslash displacement under the on this study tab, there is a longer bibliography of studies um, that I uh, that I did eventually come upon. Um, yeah, so I wanted to add that. And we and can so, also put a link to that in the show notes as well. Okay, great. So first of all, an important part of this study was the years of feeling through this project and these projects as somebody who doesn't understand the system and bouncing uh, uh, and just the general German assumptions around how nonprofit work is done and how nonprofit cultural work is done, bouncing that in relationship to my team um, of collaborators, which was mostly um people born at the time of in east germany at the time of the transition from east to west um and so i when i finally um got funding to do this research project through a cultural project funded by the state um i was like okay there's three elements in this project one is reflection around um the years of uninformed work the second is interviewing anybody involved in both refugee settlement work and asylum seeking settlement work um, and then also interviewing my co-workers and then doing um, academic research meaning reading texts around any topic related to it um, and so I just want to say uh, one thing that for a while, I had a hard time understanding the relevance of this project because of the fact that though we imagined ourselves as one of the main peoples meaningfully interfacing with these children from a non-asylum-seeking background on paper, 
our role as interlocutors with these kids is rather minimal. Um, we're not institutional staff and we're not teachers with public and legal responsibilities to these kids. Rather, we're casual employees who have a casual project as a side project in relationship to a house that strangely has gone on for five years as an unacknowledged consistency or a legally unacknowledged consistency in their life. Um, and so that problem became very clear to me just saying, who am I to actually care about these kids? Although of course one does and we do. Um, I attended a conference at the House de Veld where Erit Rogoff was uh, doing a lecture around um, precarious um, participatory research and the idea clicked. Yeah, of course this work matters despite the fact that we're precarious laborers. The institutions of care despite being very solid, legally placed institutions are actually very thin. And the care afforded to the refugees is insignificant, or not insignificant, is very thin as well through a variety of very small interfaces with public representatives. And that we are as much as anybody else as precarious workers being a consistent interface with them. And so that this project, we should be owning the import of our work, despite the fact that legally um, we have very little standing for care in relationship to these children. And so one of the main questions for me is, in relationship to the uh, lack of um, legal um, accountability and, um, and ability to represent these children and their families before anybody, what is our potential to actually do meaningful and impactful work? Um, and so that became the core of my research with my the people that I interlocuted with who weren't um, involved in the actual legal sides of asylum seeking processes. And so um, my questions with my colleagues, both um, or the role of my interviews as much as anything else, uh, besides gathering information from them on how ultimately and how they effectively play, um, place themselves in relationship to care, uh, to care work through culture and just being with kids um, and understanding how they're um, how they went from being artists and media educators to care workers, what kind of transitions they had to make in their understanding of the work. One of the main aspects of the work was to, uh, was to state very simply, we are doing important work together despite the fact that we're just casual labor, laborers. And so there was a, a, a performative and meaningfully performative aspect of that work um, of both trying to find people to interview um, and also um, 
doing interviews with uh, colleagues and collaborators on such work. I should also mention that as a part of the study, um, I employed uh, somebody I found through the local art school um, who identified as um, an asylum seeking, uh, somebody with an asylum seeking background as a consultant uh, for the research and the project. Um, yeah. And so uh, with his advice as somebody who's aware of people who've been through Flüchtlingsheim, um, Refugee Seeking Home, uh, I ran through the questions that I was asking for his feedback and also resulted um, the resultant work, asking for his work. I basically treated um, people that I was interviewing um, to a meal and uh, and ask questions about their effective relationship to the work and how um, their perceptions of the work changed over time. And okay. it's it's interesting for me in relationship to the dynamics between power and powerlessness and performative power in relationship to the children and care work that the interviews became seemed more meaningful or as meaningful as a as a cultural performance and an act of internal solidarity building as it was for uh, actual data collection in the sense that um, those asking quality uh, though yeah I was doing qualitative um, research uh, questions um, and the the general overall outcomes of that work is like a shared sensibility and, uh, and around what this work means and also affective hints um, that I had within my mind as well. Um, and so it's really hard to distinguish between this person said and what I, what I think that said, um, yeah, in other words, I also don't quite, while that research is extremely meaningful, I and anecdotally in the write-up that to the project, I, I quote individuals, it becomes a massive solidarity and um individ and individuated, non-individuated voices. Yeah, that's important. That's really important. And the um one of the questions I have as well around that is in terms of maybe something that came up through the research for you when I've been doing um my own sort of research into social engaged practices in the UK and histories of that um stretching back a long while the one of the things that keeps coming up which is a I think almost prevents meaningful and impactful work being done is the lack of consistency so there's a lot of a big critic critical um uh, approach I suppose or or criticism criticism of one of the many criticisms of professionalised social engaged practice in the UK, at least, is that it's a parachuting in type of model still where you get um, an artist who's paid for a certain number of days or, or weeks or potentially months, but very rarely for years <clears throat> to work in a place. And uh, and there is no necessarily not necessarily consistency though of, of the relationships can't build up, the trust can't build up and things because of the way the funding system works um which is essentially you know tied to treasury 
patterns of um and and spending budgets from the government is that there is it's really hard to kind of work over for years and years in a place with with people um and there are kind of obviously problems with that as well but I wondered if because you were saying how there is some potential for an experience of consistency in a in that you work you and other people have worked in the same house for a number of years um that is quite unusual I think in a in, in a UK context from my own experience of um, looking at these things but yeah I think this relates in particular uh to uh at least in this situation to the to the economic situation in Leipzig which is uh I mean it's seen as the the new Berlin in terms of its like hipster culture art commodity um standing um and um if you if one knows the old Berlin uh before the economic tightening and the boom in housing prices one of the problems of Berlin at the time was funding um and jobs which probably still continues in Leipzig it has its hip factor and a really good and dynamic um uh, progressive sensibility that expresses itself in wonderful ways just in daily life there isn't a lot of money to go around um and so uh yeah it's it's there's not a lot of just general loose work and so projects like this are um needed and necessary and if one finds figures out a way to make it work is sustainable over time um despite the heavy emotional work of, of it um and also eventually the boring repetitive nature of the projects of just simple caring for children um in mundane and yet also slightly difficult situations um and so yeah this project uh and just speaking to my co-workers and people who do this kind of work was a general sharing of the nature of this work and so the website uh intends to and projects that i hope to spin out from this intends to stand as a monument to a collective understanding of how actually we uh, we socially work in relationship to both a um significant situation which is the nationwide conversation around asylum welcoming um and then a local uh locally notable situation which is new people in our town but then is also and also in people's daily lives as asylum seekers going through difficult situations but then also an extremely mundane situation of it's monday what i'm uh it's after school what am i doing or it's monday what are after school what are my kids doing oh yeah of course they need to eat and um be calm and get along and have some fun and so um yeah and so as a as, in general it, it seems like teams of people doing this work loosely formed throughout the city through a variety of nonprofits and they have a general field of people that they call upon um to do work and so the team remains both flexible um 
but also consistent and then ability to consistently navigate relationships um, with the uh, refugee settlement houses that uh, they draw their income from, that we draw our income from, those kids. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And maybe maybe to come to a close with this interview, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about what's next for you in the research where do you see it going are you still working yeah you've got this non-profit set up so I presume that is a an ongoing area of work for you um yeah do you want to say a bit more about the next steps well um for me with this project what I'm doing with it is uh trying to figure out a way well I yeah, I'm making a set of flyers to do publicity for the project at uh, places where uh, workers like me hang out so people can read and sh- uh, can read the info and just get a sensibility about it, getting it into just an understanding that this project has been done and uh, we've been talking about it and want to share the work. Also, um, trying to figure out one of the main things that was interesting for me about this project is the affective face that one um, builds in relationship to this kind of care work, um, how one faces externally to the children whose lives, as I've pointed out, is somewhat chaotic, um, and uh, how to deal with that as a pedagogue. Um, and cultural worker, and then how to deal with that in oneself. So I've been really interested in that affective face. And so I've been doing, building a series of masks as an art project to also move that project around in um, in discourse. Um, and so, as I said, the nonprofit continues. I've been doing less work with that lately um, because the project has shifted a little bit, but people in the um, boom, a foul, continue to work in the Flüchtlingsheim at the moment. I'll probably end up working there again. Um, and a project that I'm working on that I think is notable, if I could talk about two brief projects in relationship to that effective face, um, one project that I'm working on right now with the Willem de Kooning Academy in Rotterdam with an ongoing collaborator of mine, Michelle Turan, is a project that uh, that's entitled um, Promiscuous Care, which is about um, care work among workers, uh, col- cultural workers in relationship to a careless institution. Um, so in... Um, yeah, looking at uh, focusing more on internal dialogues between people in relationship to the mean father of uh, or the asshole uh, that governs us. Um, and then one other project that I'm working right now in relationship to the Journal of Aesthetics and Protests is a long-term research project around uh, cultures of becoming um, and... Uh, how it is that uh, left movements think around um, in a time of rapid climate transformations and um, the general fractured, and that's not a negative turn, landscapes of powers and, uh, and movements, 
how we work between questions of being and becoming with the focus on the being through difficult situations together and um, in communication and entanglement with wider social and political arrangements. Oh, thank you, Mark. It's such important work. And we're going to put lots of links to all of this on the show notes for this episode. Is there anything else you wanted to add or point people towards, flag up in relation to the conversation we've had? Yeah, actually, I think, uh, yeah. And so one of the, I guess I wanted to just as an ending, like a main outcome of this work was something that became very clear to us early on was uh, was the idea of though we are precarious workers with no actual legal relationship for care with these kids, with an overarching theme of I don't want to traumatize these sweet darlings anymore. Um, and so while we came in with strong ideas of what we could do with this work, it became very clear that our clearly Eurocentric and institutionally directed, art institutionally directed and culturally instituted, uh, culturally directed concepts for what we can do with these people became a really directly violent um, impulse <laughs> saying uh, that we realize what the hell, why do I need to have these children respond to these concerns when it has objectively or when it has very little to do with their concerns? Yes, 1% of these might eventually decide to go into the cultural fields, but the vast majority of these kids may or may not have any concerns around what somebody thinks is beautiful or what somebody else thinks is meaningful for them. And so one thing that we found uh, that I was happy to find out among everybody that I interviewed was we all realized, yeah, our main concern is to give these children a nice day rather than deliver meaningful, impactful cultural experiences. Yeah, really important. And I think that goes back to what you're saying about the mismatch in funding applications and what's happening on the ground. And there's in a, the way those cultural policies that the funding is streaming from is buying into the idea of the transformational kind of role and magic that art and artists can offer in a place. Um, but most people on at least the people you've spoken to, certainly, and your own experience is, is the um the bullshitting that that entails, the bullshitting on applications in a, in evaluations, um, that in a way perpetuates this ideal version of of a role of art in society. Um yeah. and I think the kind of bursting that bubble is really important. And I'm one yeah, I wonder how best we burst those bubbles. Is it is it, you know, there's the the flyer and the website and the kind of talking to co-workers about it and sharing those sort solid moments of solidarity and kind of, yes, we all see through the bullshit because we're living it and experiencing it. But how you know, I guess in as a question as well as to what are the implications of bursting that bubble on a grander scale, um, 
which I'm really interested in doing. But it's also, you know, what what are the what's the next step after we've done that? Is do, do you know do the do these um, third sector these nonprofits then go under? Is there another model that should emerge from that or another? Or, um, yeah, I mean, there's, it raises so many further questions, which are really um, uh, yeah important to to keep talking about. Yeah, and so for me, the idea of uh, uh, this is a post-migrant research project that we've all experienced facts of migration and that we all managed to live together somehow. And the name of this project being Always Coming Home is a general idea that we're uh, creating a world in which somehow we're always at home. I know that's, I, and I just wanted to mention that in relationship to what you were just um, pointing towards, and obviously I'm not giving any solution there and I don't have any, but nevertheless, just that exhaling of like, ah, oh, we're just people. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to have a nice day. <laughs> oh, thank you, Mark. Well, let's, um, yeah, let's continue the conversation. And thank you so much for sharing this really important work with us and, uh, and we'll be in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you so much as well. Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.